Nick Hanauer here. Today, I have some incredibly sad news to share, which is, um, uh, you know, a, a man I admired immensely, uh, the economist Alan Kruger from Princeton, passed unexpectedly over the weekend. Um, he, Alan Kruger was one of the most remarkable economists of our time, and he had the courage to, to challenge orthodoxy in ways that few people do and that we truly admire. He pioneered the empirical study of the minimum wage and, um, and uh, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that raising wages, in fact, does not kill jobs and as a consequence has, uh, you know, maybe more than any economist living it contributed to improving the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. Uh, I didn't always agree with everything Alan said, but I was always an admirer of his authenticity and integrity and his his decision to live a life committed to service. He was a part of uh, multiple administrations and uh, Obama's and Clinton's and did just a remarkable job in everything that he did. Anyway, as a tribute to Alan, uh, who we interviewed earlier in the year, here's our uh, candid and unedited conversation. Hey, Alan, Nick. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing, you know, I say personally, I'm doing fine. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a breakfast talk this morning by Michael Blumenthal. Michael Blumenthal was treasury secretary for Jimmy Carter. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. 92 years old. He was born in Berlin, and it was on the parallels between Trump and Hitler, and I kind of came away depressed. So That'll do it. it. That will do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are you in Princeton, New Jersey right now? I am. Oh, good, good. I I am. Well, meet my my colleague, uh, Stephanie Irvin. Hi, Professor. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, I hear you just fine. Yeah, she uh, uh, Stephanie helps us with the podcast. So th- I wanted to first, uh, again, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us about some of this stuff. Um, uh, it's great fun to chat about. It's a it's a welcome distraction from the shit show, which is the national <laughs> political circumstance, um, which is just uh, so 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 depressing. Um, Anyway, so why don't we why don't we get started? I think what, what super uh, what would be useful is if you just sort of identify yourself and um, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, I'm Alan Kruger. I'm a professor of economics at Princeton University. I've been here for 31 years, and uh, fortunately, I've been able to take a leave from time to time and serve in the government as well. Dude, My you've last been, you've been at Princeton 31 years. 31 years, since 1987. Did you go to kindergarten there? <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> Time flies, yep. I'm now, you know, I look around, I'm like one of the oldest people here. That is amazing. Wow. You go, home sweet home. Well, good for you. Um, well, listen, l- l- I want to start off um, this conversation with a quote uh, from an economist, I want you to name the economist. Uh, and I quote, the inverse relationship between quantity demanded and price is the core proposition in economic science, which embodies the presumption that human choice behavior is sufficiently rational to allow predictions to be made. Just as no physicist would claim that water runs uphill, 
No self-respecting economist would claim that increases in the minimum wage increase employment. Such a claim, if seriously advanced, becomes equivalent to a denial that there is even a minimal scientific content in economics. Who was that economist? I believe that was James Buchanan. You are, you, you are correct, sir. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And, and where, where did that quote uh, appear? Do you remember? Uh, my guess is on the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal. Yes. And why did he write it? You know, it's a, it's a funny story. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the Wall Street Journal ran a series of criticisms of my work with David Card in the <laughs> mid-90s, like a whole page full. And, and that one came in late. That one was printed separate from the rest. So um, it, it was, you know, I guess felt by the Wall Street Journal editorial board so important to uh, just pile on, to, to c- come up with a... Uh, yet another criticism of us. And yeah. that one was so far over the top. I mean, you, you read the, the, the nicest parts of it. And it just shows, I think, such a different perspective about what science is. Yes. You know, to me, science is to be tested. Yes. And uh, to just assert things from principles without testing just, to me, makes absolutely no sense. Yes. Uh, there are perfectly respectable economic models which have... Uh, a role where the minimum wage can lead to higher employment, can help companies fill vacancies, for example, or in models where uh, aggregate demand is weak for whatever reason and, and wages are too low, minimum wage could lead to more consumer spending and higher uh, uh, economic activity. So it was just so bizarre to me, and, and there were parts of it which were uh, uh, much more insulting, actually, than the part that you read. <laughs> Well, you know, you know what? Um, uh, I can't resist um, just pointing out how angry this is, right? Like, like it, it, what a what a remarkable sort of ad hominem attack this is. Well, the, you, you you skipped over the ad hominem part. The ad yeah. hominem part accused uh, David Card of me and me of being camp following whores. Literally, that's that's what he that's what he wrote, uh, and it was just stunning to me. Uh, our work wasn't supported by the AFL-CIO. Our work wasn't supported by any interest group. Yet to make the accusation, uh, make the accusation that the only people who could possibly, you know, interpret the evidence the way we interpret it must be people who are carrying the water for somebody, or you know, use yeah. much. Uh, uh, much much more provocative language. Uh, I thought it was just totally unprofessional, totally out of place, and a sign of insecurity. I think. Well, it, in it, his beliefs. Yeah. So, but but it, but isn't it more than insecurity? Isn't it the defense of a worldview and a set of ideas that enforce a status construct that you really prefer? Because at the end of the day, it, 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 the power of the claim, raising wages kills jobs, is that it enforces a status construct, right? It, it, it anchors uh, the moral claim that, well, I would raise your wages, except then that would be bad for you, and therefore I won't, and profit should be high and wages should be low. I mean, just, what do you think about that? 
you know, I guess my interpretation is the, uh, and the reason why I said insecurity is that if your position was so strong, you don't have to be so over the top. Yeah. The evidence would speak for itself. Yes. And he didn't want to go to the evidence. He didn't want to allow evidence to be admissible. And to me, that's an indication that you think the evidence is not strong enough. So, uh, and and the, the other part of the insecurity, I think, is, and this might relate to what you were saying, Nick, if you take out this block from their edifice, the whole thing crumbles. Right. It, at the end of the and, day, that's it. That's it. And I think that's where the insecurity came from. Because yes. here was a test, pretty compelling one. And, and in fact, when David Carr and I presented work years and years ago in the early 90s, Marvin Costers from the American Enterprise Institute was one of our early discussants. And, you know, he was really torn. And you could see he was visibly torn because he thought the methods we were using were pretty compelling. Yes. So, um, and to, to his credit, you know, he recognized that this is going to be hard to square with, with his worldview. Yes. And th- there are some people, I think, who, who just have difficulty not fitting the world into... Um, a particular structure and take sort of a religious fervor to their approach to economics, which I think is just totally unwarranted. I think that's just not the way the economy operates. That's not the best way to model the economy. But that's that, that there, there's a strand, and Buchanan represented that. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, uh, again, to listeners who are not as a uh, familiar with uh, your legacy of work. I just want to remind everybody that uh, Alan Kruger here and his colleagues were among the first uh, uh, investigators of the relationship between raising wages and jobs and, uh, you know, to my mind, demonstrated that there wasn't any real impact on the number of jobs around when you raised wages. And I think that early study, which came out when? Uh, uh, The first one? The, the New Jersey-Pennsylvania comparison, which is the one that's yeah. received you know, the lion's share yeah. of the attention, that was published in 94. Right. And, and since then, there's been you know, more and more and more, just a, just a huge pile of empirical evidence that essentially corroborates that, that, you know, that, that early conclusion that you really can't find very much. Um, if you can find any job loss at all, it's, it's, in, it's, it's in the realm of noise. Um, and certainly that's been our experience in Seattle where, you know, we raise the minimum wage in what, what has to have been one of the most, uh, um, stark natural experiments ever conducted, uh, where we raised the minimum wage of $15 an hour, by the way, $15 an hour for, for, for tipped workers too, who other places earn two thirteen plus tips. So not, not 7% more, but 700% more and unemployment fell by, you know, from, 49 to 3.6% during the intervening period. And all of the good data suggests that nothing happened except things got better for low-wage workers. Um, I think that's what the uh, vast majority of studies have found since yeah. the work that Card and I did. But by the way, Nick, I'll tell you an interesting story, backstory to this. When I started working in this area, my expectation was the conventional wisdom. That, that's what I had been taught. And the work prior to what Card and I had done was primarily based on time series analyses. You look at periods when the federal minimum wage was relatively high or relatively low. 
a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. And then you could see whether teenage employment was relatively high or relatively low in those periods, trying to control for some other things. And there was a long tradition of running those kinds of time series models. I was never terribly convinced of them, but they tended to find small elasticity of demand. They tended to support the conventional wisdom that higher minimum wage reduced teenage employment. And people would argue about the magnitude, but there was a consensus that that's what it showed. And then a funny thing happened. In the 1980s, the minimum wage did not increase in nominal terms. Ronald Reagan vetoed minimum wage increases, Mm -hmm. and the real value of the minimum wage fell considerably to the lowest level it's been in recent decades. Yet you didn't see the spurt in employment. You didn't see teenage employment grow over that period. Actually, it fell. So if you just estimate those exact same models that have been estimated and extend the time series, add more data, the effect goes away. Now, that's not supposed to happen. Usually when you add more data, if the model is correct, you actually get a more precise, stronger estimate, not a weaker estimate. Right. So that literature had broken down. And when, when I started in this area, I thought, okay, so how do we find a more compelling test? I don't really find the time series all that compelling. Uh, How do we identify a natural experiment where one area had a minimum wage increase and another one, which otherwise would be very similar, didn't? And that's how David Carr and I focused on the New Jersey-Pennsylvania comparison. And I honestly thought we would be the guys in the white hats rescuing the conventional wisdom when we came in because anybody, you know, who would have been taking this stuff seriously would have said the conventional wisdom broke down. And yet what we found was more evidence that the conventional wisdom was wrong. So you would think with that background, the profession would have been a little bit more open-minded, that Buchanan uh, would have said, well, maybe I don't have this exactly right. Maybe the world is more complicated than I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the background behind, uh, behind our work. And the, the other thing I'll, I'll just throw in, because you care and most of the rest of the world doesn't, another feature of our our study was we could look within New Jersey, because there were sections of New Jersey where the starting wage was already above the new minimum wage. Right. So that formed a control group for the other sections where the minimum wage was pretty low and the minimum wage increase, where the starting wage was low, so the minimum wage increase raised wages a lot. And that looked exactly like what we found when we compared across the border from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. So we thought we had, you know, pretty coherent evidence, and, and we pushed it pretty far, I think, which is part of the reason why, even though the study is now almost 25 years old, um, the critics still feel compelled to criticize it. Yeah. But it's... so, Professor, will you just lay out for our listeners exactly what you looked at in the 94 study and what your conclusions were? Because I think we've sort of skipped over that a little. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So uh, what happened in um, – I'm going to get the dates wrong. So I think it was Plus in – <laughs> 93. We, we will not grade you down um, for getting the date wrong. Um, actually, I can pull out my book. Hold on one second. <laughs> you, you know, I'm a real stickler for accuracy. <laughs> so, um, it, 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 and it's also it was a fascinating natural experiment because. Um, in the early 92, um, New Jersey almost reversed our experiment. So, so what had happened was um, the governor and the state legislature in New Jersey were controlled by Democrats, 
and they decided to raise the federal minimum, uh, the state minimum mm-hmm. wage, uh, up to five dollars and five cents an hour. They did that in um, '91, but then the legislature flipped, and the governor was pretty unpopular for other reasons. And it looked like the new legislature was going to repeal the minimum wage increase that had previously been enacted but not taken effect. So basically what happened was, and, and they, they felt just short of enough votes to override a veto by the governor. So uh, the minimum wage uh, increase did take effect. Um, and in uh, April of 92, the minimum wage in New Jersey rose from four and a quarter to five dollars and five cents an hour, an eighty cent increase, which you know on a base of four and a quarter was a pretty large increase. In Pennsylvania, they stayed at the federal minimum wage, which was four and a quarter, for the next several years. And David Card and I collected data on fast food restaurants that were located in New Jersey or just across the border in Pennsylvania. And we looked at what happened to employment and wages at fast food restaurants in New Jersey versus Pennsylvania. And the data quite clearly uh, pointed to job growth being at least as strong in New Jersey, and in some cases even stronger than, than in Pennsylvania. When we were uh, initially criticized uh, by an industry group which collected data from you know, a handful of, of fast food restaurants, Card and I went to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and we uh, got permission to get the IRS payroll tax data, uh, which the BLS gets from the IRS, and we could look at um, what the companies were reporting. So we had even more accurate data, and again, it showed a very similar picture. The minimum wage increase in New Jersey didn't lead to job loss of anything. It led to stronger job growth in New Jersey than Pennsylvania. As you know... (laughs) I'm not a trained economist, although I have endeavored to learn as much about the subject as a, as, as a, as a non-professional can. But having grown up in businesses and having now helped run three dozen of them, the, the, the conventional wisdom that raising wages kills jobs uh, it is one of the most astoundingly illogical and unempirical um, ideas I've ever come across because the fundamental dynamic of market economies is that when people are paid more, they buy more stuff, and then the people they buy it from are, are forced to hire more workers. And that, you know, the, 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 if, it, if it is true that raising wages kills jobs, and it must also be true that, 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 that lowering wages increases jobs, except if no one has any money, who will buy the stuff? <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it just makes no sense whatsoever in the real world, and I, I think that when you look at the empirical evidence, what you find is that high-wage places tend to have a lot of business activity, and low-wage places tend not to, unless they're exporting, <laughs> unless they're essentially being used... Uh, by by other countries as a place to exploit people, which is which is what a lot of trade is, and it, I, I, so what, what really fascinates me, what I can't what what I can't come to understand is how the economics profession derived this 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 conventional wisdom, like where do you get that? Where does that idea come from? That if you pay people less, somehow 
there will be jobs because what? Like, well, how, where does that come yeah. from? It comes from the idea that the labor market is very competitive. It comes from the idea that there are no resources that are unemployed to begin with. That the market is clearing. Equilibrium. That you're in an equilibrium. And a particular kind of equilibrium. You're in an equilibrium where companies have no discretion over what they pay. So that was the end of the interview. And uh, we have lost an incredible human being and a force for good in the world. Super sad. Rest in peace, Alan Kruger.